Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Gina Miller of Legal Fame and of course founder of her own political party, the True and Fair Party. We talk about that, what the uh, aims of the party are, um, the structure of the party and um, the challenges facing a new political party in today's political marketplace, if I can say that without sounding not too much of an idiot. Uh, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, with your encounters with politicians, particularly if they're awkward or odd. Chris has been in touch. He says, I met Alistair Darling in 2007. I was a primary school teacher, a head teacher, running one of the most deprived schools in Nottingham. Excellent, Chris. Good for you. And he said, um, my school used to be the children's mental health charity place to be to support many of our kids. Alistair Darling's wife, Maggie, was a strong supporter of this particular charity and chosen to be the guest of that year's 11 Downing Street Christmas party, which I was lucky enough to be invited to attend. Brilliant. With some children from my school. God, this is great. It was a fun event with a magician and various X Factor contestants from that year mingling around the building. God, I'm jealous. Anyway, Alistair did not seem to be enjoying himself very much. I find myself next to him by the teapot and offered to make him a cup of tea. With the words, tough week, Chancellor. He gave me a wry smile, thanked me for the tea, then wandered off. Perhaps rampaging kids weren't his thing. I mean, it's a fair point. He says, he ends it by saying, come on, you read. So good on you, Chris, Forest fan. And, uh, well, an all-round educational hero who had um, an awkward encounter with Alistair Darling. Send yours into politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to come and see the show live. The next live show is with Michael Heseltine. That is on um, Monday. The, I should, the date should trip off the tongue, shouldn't it? Monday the 7th of February. It's the, you know, the next few days. Monday the 7th of February at the Duchess Theatre. That is not to be missed. Um, on the 21st of... I forgot what month it is. 21st of February. Um, I guess will be the fantastic Edwina Curry. That is going to be an outrageous and raucous night. And two weeks after that, on the 7th of March, it will be Neil Kinnock. The Christmas special with Jacob Rees-Mogg and Rosanna Allen Khan has been rescheduled to the 11th of April. So your tickets, if you've already got them, are valid for that. If you haven't got them, well, we're going to have a Christmas party in April uh, with Jacob Rees-Mogg and Rosanna Allen Khan. Um, so that is very exciting. So anyway, on to today's business with Gina Miller. Someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. And again, often it's better just leaving it a few years because now she's in a position where um, she's actually entering into politics herself um, as the leader and founder of the True and Fair Party. Um, this is obviously, we, we talk a lot about politics, we talk about her experience going through the courts and making sure that the government was taken to court to ensure that Parliament had a vote uh, on effectively what sort of Brexit we were going to have, and but also personal stuff and her own uh, life and how that shaped her politics. This is, as you would imagine, um, thrilling, very interesting, and actually... Um, there's something very soothing about this. You know, if you often wo worry about where we're going as a country uh, and you want a bit of hope for the future, then I think you will find it here. I'm delighted to be joined by Gina Miller, who's just launched her new political party, the True and Fair Party. Uh, Gina, why launch a new political party now? Uh, lovely to speak to you, Matt. Yes, not the easiest thing to do. And I'm the first to say that it's going to be an uphill struggle. Our political system does not allow a new party to come along in the first past the post. And, but I think it's very important to make a decision in life. Do you sit on the sidelines and watch or do you step up when you think you have something to offer? And I think COVID has done an odd thing. It's actually exposed the failures, the systemic failures in our democratic system and actually in our machinery of government. 
because we get sidelined by you know what we're reading in the headlines every day but i think it's it's actually we need to take a step back and think we have a naive system which believes that you know it's a my word is my bond um and that people will will behave with integrity and principles and i think that is naive in in modern society and it's about the machinery of government so true and fair is proposing that what we do is we put in a much much more um, accountable checks and balances that will reflect in the culture and the machinery of government which will then have a ripple effect of creating fairer policies a fairer voting system and a better culture so it's not about any particular party or right and left i talk about being right and wrong and time to modernize our democracy so when you talk about modernizing our democracy obviously in a in our voting system you you prefer proportional representation to first past the post but what I mean, is this something that could be passed in an act of parliament or you're talking about even more fundamental change? There are some commentators who are talking about a written constitution. I think that may be a future goal and it's, you know, it, it, it could take uh, many decades, actually. What would go into that constitution? I think there are more urgent things that we could do. So um, our policy is proposing an act of government that would bring in, um, say, a, something similar to an oath of office or a contract because in every other walk of life, we're accountable um, to a contract and we have to behave in a certain way. And you can tell if you're bullying, if you're putting your hand in the till, if you're you know, giving contracts to your mates, it's all there laid out. So you don't have to go through these exhaustive in, um, investigations and wasting of money as far as I can see. So everyone knows where they stand and they know what the redress is, but it's not just about politics. It's actually in, in positions of power across regulators in any public office, because these Nolan principles that we have that are, you know, all of self, it's actually about personal responsibility. I think we have to have something that's much more. And if we look across business in, in with my business hat on, we are pushing for better governance, better transparency in the whole world of ESG. You know, these are, th these are themes that we've been banging the drum on for decades now, and yet they seem to be, you know, a gaping um, void in politics when it comes to going down this path of better governance, governance, more transparency, better culture, more diversity and more accountability. So, I mean, I may be wrong in this, but certainly in, in recent times, you seem to be the, the, the only party expressly founded upon the principles of really focusing on the machinery of government. I think that's right, because, um, you know, what happens is people get emotive, don't they? they? They get drawn into the emotion of the problem. And throughout my 30 years as a campaigner, I've tried to take a very different prismatic approach and say, well, you know, these are all symptoms. But what is the what is the issue? What is the fundamental problem? Because long term solutions that are sustainable require you to see beyond the immediate symptom and look at the under at the, at the problem. And as I said, we have a system where we think we, we um, you know, we vote in or we elect the best captain and crew, but we don't actually invest in the, in the ship itself, in the vessel. Um, so that's where we need to go, because looking ahead, if I carry on the ship analogy, if you look at what the headwinds coming our way, they're enormous environmentally, economically, demographically, when you look at the aging of our population, the digital revolution, having a three to five year um, policy making that's more about loyalty than an ideology than actual underlying problem. I don't think we'll take our country to a better place where future generations aren't burdened with clearing up the issues, the massive issues coming down the track, because we didn't find a different way of approaching policy making and politics. Would you be better off 
joining forces with, say, the Labour Party. You know, you've got a, you've got a leader of the Labour Party now that you know was a Remainer, is a QC, someone who a lot of people think has a you know a high level of integrity, probably shares your concerns about the way that government is run. Why not join the Labour Party and lobby from within all the Lib Dems? Why set up your own well, party? Uh, first of all, I think, you know, you say voted remain. I, uh, you know, I say I'm on record after the day of referendum saying we're all Brexiteers now. And I think we've got to move on from that because we're not making the most of the of the opportunities we have. We're still navel gazing on yesterday's issues. And I think that's very distracting from where we need to be. But from my point of view, both political main political parties, actually, um, it's like Turkey's voting for Christmas. You know, their the duopoly works for them. And I don't believe that they are sincere in wanting the systemic change that's necessary. Because when it comes to reforming the voting system, I'm, I think everybody who puts their X on a paper in that box, wherever on the spectrum they are, they deserve to be represented in parliament. It shouldn't be about first past the post. And people will argue, well, that lets in parties from the right or left. But actually, if that's what people vote for, there, it should be fairly represented. I don't buy that argument that it lets in extremes. Actually, it creates a more balanced government and people then trust the system that they, when they involve, they get involved in it, exercise their duty, that they will actually be represented. And the other thing I'd say with the two, with the Labour Party or Lib Dems is, I think that uh, there are so many legacy issues within the, the existing parties that to create structural change, I can't be, our energies and resources can't be diverted by those internal tribal issues. It's about focusing on the change. So I see this as a five, 10 year project where we actually need systemic change. And it's got to be extremely focused in the very challenging political environment and electoral environment that we do have in the UK. And if it's about getting elected then, I mean, it's so hard for new parties to break through. I mean, it's really hard. The Greens have only got one MP and they've been going for <laughs> yeah. ages. You know, they've had more success yeah. in Scotland, but they have a proportional system up there. So what is your route to, to, to winning parliamentary seats? We will have to be very careful. First of all, we have to see where we land and how we land. Um, I think with the other thing, apart from the, the COVID is done, as well as exposing the weaknesses in our system, is that people are more aware and awake to the fact that we do need change and that um, they, and but at that same time, that's a plus. The minus is, and all the research we've done and me going around the country, I've been up in very North and Manchester this week, people are saying they won't vote. And that I think is a real democratic deficit that needs to be addressed because if people feel they have no choice, then our system doesn't work. So what I'm saying is there is a golden thread at the moment, and I'm not saying it will be for, there for very long, it may well not be, but I think there's an opportunity to step up and give people a choice where they can see that they will be changed because we're not conflicted in saying we are professional politicians, we want to be in this for the long term, actually our goal is change. So I think there's an opportunity for people to lend us their vote to create change and that opportunity may not be here again. It's hard though isn't it because people say well either you know, I'm a Tory, I'm, I'm voting for the Tories, or I'm disaffected with the Tories, I'm going to vote Labour to punish the Tories, or I'm Labour and, you know, or ex-Labour, and now I can vote Labour again because of Keir Starmer. If people don't understand whether you're left-wing or right-wing, it's very hard for them to place where you are. I mean, I know that you say it's more about right and wrong, but are you more left-wing than right-wing? Are, are you centrist? Where would you place yourself on the spectrum? 
I think issue by issue, we'll look at the data, we'll look at the facts and look at what it is that the, what is the best sustainable outcome. So it may vary. I mean, some politics that you might put into one bank and some another, but we will look at each policy area on its individual merits and the data and the facts and where the most practical solutions can come. But on that, I'd say that our data has categorically shown you 71% in our polling of people want to see more checks and balances in government. 50% of people say they would vote for electoral reform. And, you know, and the other statistic, which is frightening, is we've got high 20% who are saying, actually, they're not going to vote for either main party because Conservatives will not switch to Labour and Labour won't switch to Conservatives. And, the, and Lib Dems, I'm afraid, are hardly on the radar. So, uh, you know, there is an opportunity to give people an a choice, a positive choice, rather than a negative, which is how people tend to vote. They vote against a party rather than for a party. And is your ambition for this to, to become a genuine parliamentary force to one day form a government, or is it a way to effectively force the other parties, in a way like the Green Party does, force the other parties to adopt your ideas? I think both would be a win, but our, our ambition is to stand. But, you know, the election is, I, when we first started uh, applying to electoral commission, the, the soundings were that there may be an election in 23. I don't think that's the, 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 the sort of mass commentators now that it will be in 24. So we've got two years, 18 months to two years to set out our stall. But we, if and when we do stand candidates, we will be very careful to ensure that we do it in, first of all, to make sure we don't split the vote. And secondly, I do believe in local candidates. I don't believe we just helicopter people in, um, you know, and showboat just because a particular individual. So if I stand, for example, I would stand locally. Um, and I do, so there's an opportunity there. But, you know, if we do end up in a scenario where there's a hung parliament, then we do have a much bigger opportunity. But we will have to see where, you know, two years in politics, especially politics at the moment, is a very long time. <laughs> so who knows? We don't even know what will happen in two weeks, but <laughs> so we'll wait and see. No, it's very difficult. I mean, obviously, you, you face, as all political parties do, huge challenges. You know, it, the constitution of your party will be important. You know, you, you're talking about the constitution of the country, but you have to get your own house in order first. You know, do you have a national executive committee? How is it constituted? What role does yes. the leader have? Do you have a deputy leader? Is it appointed, you know, uh, by the leader or is it elected by the members? I mean, how far are you so, on with your own rules? So, so to, to um, apply to the electoral commission, we have to submit all of that. So we've already done that. So our constitution's in place. Um, you know, we, we applied in September, our financial pro program and plans, they came back with quite a few questions. We answered them all. And then we were regulated in December. So all of that is already in place. Um, because we're a new party and I'm realistic about not just the challenge, but you know, the resources and the financing, we won't be operating with lots of local branches. We will be more of a centralized party and then just look at the seats where we can stand. And we are only registered in England and Wales. Um, so we are being very realistic about what is achievable. Okay, that's interesting because Scotland has a proportional system. So why not stand there? Because we, we, we support a united uh, kingdom. We are a, a party who uh, supports union, the union. And at the moment, the politics in Scotland, it would be stretching our resources. I mean, if that doesn't mean we won't in, uh, definitely know. I mean, we could apply to the commission and change that. But realistically, we can stand in England and Wales. And how much interest have you had? Have you had many people joining? So we have, we've had, on the first day of the launch on the website, we had over 15,500 people on site, and that's been building and building. We now have, um, we have thousands on our list. 
We membership is just starting off, is, is building now. It's about me getting out about and about and the party getting out about. As I said, I was um, in Manchester um, and Berry South. We've got another tour coming up and then I will get out and about, but also it's also about getting our messages out. So we've launched with two policies. We're working on our third policy paper, which will be coming out in the next few weeks. And then from there on, because people want to know what we stand for rightly before they'll commit. But there is an awful lot of interest and there's a lot of people wanting to volunteer, which is also very positive. Is there a danger that, you know, we're living in a time where people are saying um, campaigning is very emotional, that these are all appeals to the heart, not the head, that things have become very impassioned. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And the Labour Party has really struggled with how to, you know, and the centre-left has really struggled with how to, you know, campaign emotionally as well as campaign rationally. Is there not a danger that you're <laughs> coming across with a sort of very rational political offer at a time when people are wanting something actually quite emotional? Which is why I've got to get out there because, you know, there is a particular picture that's been painted of me. But, you know, I, you know, I was one of those people, a single mum, putting my hand down every sofa every work, week, figuring out if I had enough pennies to buy food. I lived in a car for three weeks when I couldn't survive, uh, afford anything else. I'm a survivor of domestic violence when there was no support. You know, I, I've, I've lived a life where I understand what um, struggling means and what having to live every day with a terror in the pit of your stomach, not knowing how you're gonna survive that day. And so to go out there and tell people, not only have I, do I understand this, but I'm gonna fight for you now that I'm, because now that I've been successful and I'm in a different place, it is my duty to give back to those who've enabled my success. And that's the whole of society. So I'm doing what I believe is my civic duty. And it's going out there telling people that story and explaining to them that actually they can be the change too, and that, the future will only change if we all get involved. And that is a, a storytelling element. And I agree with you. We have to appeal to people's heads and hearts. Being rational on its own is not going to move people's minds, mindsets, and it's not going to create hope in them because that's what we also need. I mean, there is a, what I find very, very upsetting is there is a, a, a shroud over our country where people are actually feeling depressed. They really feel there is no hope and they feel that, what you know especially those who have children and grandchildren and they see this burdened generation and think no nothing can change and what i'm saying to them is yes there is an opportunity to change but we've all got to be part of that change so it's the storytelling element you're absolutely right matt is is so important and you said there's a picture painted of you um what do you feel that picture is well, in the court cases, you know, so I popped up from nowhere and I was this woman who apparently used my money to to change people's votes. When actually, if you looked at the, the data, we never actually, we never deferred any of the timeline for the government. And what we were trying to do is not get a government to act illegally, which in the, what's happening at the moment is, uh, you know, makes me sit back and smile somewhat. Um, I, I, it's, almost, it's very tempting to say I told you so, but it's, it's bigger than that. And uh, I need to go out there and tell that story. But as I said, having been a campaigner for 30 years, um, I, I understand that pain and, and the, the party gate and everything that's going on at the moment, everybody in the country has an experience and has a story. And I think that's why people are so upset. I mean, me, myself in, in that May, 2020, I had found out that uh, children with special needs because my eldest daughter has special needs. She's 33, age of sort of five or six mentally. But people with special needs were going into hospitals and they were do not resuscitate orders for people. And I was being contacted. So I was terrified that my daughter would go into hospital and I'd never see her again. 
So I was busy fighting that and trying to get that exposed in the media. I was also getting um, people who were um, on the front line who tend to work, you know, they attract people with a similar vocational mindset. So you have, you know, a nurse who'll have a partner who's a fireman or an ambulance driver, et cetera, who are all saying, what happened if we die? We don't have a will. There is no way for us to do will. We have no provision for our children. Will they be taken into care? I was being inundated. And so I was working, and I have to say, Rob Buckland was, was fantastic, actually. He actually allowed video um, witnessing for will so people could actually do that. So, you know, I was busy trying to make a difference. And that's why I try to look at practical solutions throughout the pain that people are feeling. And, and that's, again, something I need to go out and tell people. I mean, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself either. You know, obviously, whenever you have public profiles, some people will make assumptions about you. Um, to oh, many yes, other yes, people, I know. you know, but to many other people, you're a hero uh, on either side of the of the Brexit debate because it's important that the laws of the land are applied, and it was important that Parliament was sovereign, and and you played a crucial part in that. I I, I did what I what I felt I needed to do, and I and, and that's sort of I move on with my campaigning. It's now about the future. I mean, it's very kind of people to say that, but I. Yeah, that, that was a moment in time. It's what I now do with the future. Did it feel weird to be... I mean, Brexit, <laughs> you think about it. It's this insane exercise, really, regardless of what, what you think of the Oh, outcome. it was crazy. All, it was absolutely crazy. You are thrust into the middle of it and become a kind of leader, really, to, to a whole group of people. Yeah, no, 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 you don't... Uh, no, Matt, it's even stranger than that, because in the very first court case, I was supposed to be... I was assured I'd be one of three claimants. And when, um, so two men and myself, and when we got permission um, to bring the case and the first bit of abuse started in the, one of the, uh, the mainstream press, they both sort of said, sorry, can't do this and melted away. So I then sat with the lawyers and they said, Gina, it's up to you. You either carry on, because at that stage, we'd only just got given permission in July of, um, in the July. And uh, so I, and I just sort of looked around and went, it's sort of, I'm quite fatalistic in a way. I came to the UK um, because my father had formed, was instrumental in forming a political party against our dictator. And my elder brother and I were shipped over the age of sort of snuck out actually, the age of 11 and 13, because we were on a death um, list. Um, and so my life seems to have gone full circle. And I sort of sat there in front of the lawyers and I said, I'm almost a child, you know, I'm a, I'm a result of, of everything I've experienced. Of course, it was just gonna be me. So it seems almost, almost fatalistic about it so I sort of you one could argue naively said fine I'm carrying on not understanding two very important things um yes we said to the court we'd carry on but not only did the two men um, sort of disappear but so did their money so I was faced with this <laughs> having to front it and having to fund it which were two things I really had never anticipated and then the second thing I never anticipated was that when we won that Mrs. May's government would actually appeal. Because I remember that meeting again with the lawyers when they said, you know, it was two hours later the government submitted and said they were going to appeal. I just sat there saying to them, so where are we gonna find money from? <laughs> what are we gonna do? And they looked at me and went, well, you're the claimant. So yeah, it was, it was not what I expected. <laughs> Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And dealing with the pressure that comes with that profile, and specifically going into the Brexit debate, which was... uh, Pressurized environment for a lot of people, you know, for yeah, families, yes, for, for normal people. people. Yeah. But but you were certainly a lightning rod for a, a lot of that stuff. Yes. Um, that can't have been easy. Well, it was, there were days when I came home and just cried, to be honest, Matt, because I ended up, we ended up for three years being looked after by the terrorist squad. And so we never left. So when lockdown came, it was a very odd situation because we'd almost already been in lockdown for two or three years because we stopped going out on the weekends. I stopped going out with my children because if uh, I decided that if anything happened to me, I didn't want them to be with me. Um, you know, we were getting, it was horrific, but not just online. It was the, there was one particular letter that will live with me forever, which was that it was a letter came to my office saying, we know you where your children go to school and they'll be taken and killed and we'll be sending you them back their bodies. And the thing is, I met with the with the terror squad and they said you we don't actually know if these people they could actually they could know you this they could be following you and your family they could know so I just jumped into um, a car got them from school came home and just held them because you never know if it's real or not and for me it was it was the hardest thing was letting them go back out to school every day in that period because I just feared that something would happen to them not me I mean I I, I sort of there wasn't space and time for me to think about myself. I just had to think about them. Um, and when the decision to take to start this party, I spent the last year talking to my family and talking to my children um, and saying to them, are you sure, you know, the implication of me doing this means I'm putting my head above the parapet again. But I think people have changed. I think in Britain has moved on. And it's really interesting on International Holocaust Remembrance Day today for us to be talking because I think people have realized that hatred doesn't help our community, that being divided doesn't make us a strong country. And a lot of the extremes on either side, right and left, I think are being shunned now. And I think that's a really positive. So I'm much more hopeful now than I was three or four years ago. Well, that's good. I mean, in so many ways, you've lived a a kind of British version of the American dream. You've come here as an immigrant. You've made an amazing life for yourself. You've contributed to our national life in a profound way. I, I just wonder whether that abuse, and I mean, that goes beyond abuse, um, affected your perception of the country at all? No, um, it's quite interesting. I think people sometimes say to me it's because I'm a, I'm a child of the empire, because actually, you say I'm an immigrant. I was actually, I, it always, always makes me laugh because I actually was born British. So I have a British passport from birth. Um, and I remember having, uh, humour is also a very imp- um, important way of handling some of this as well. I remember being, there was a fundraising page to raise 2000 pounds to send me home. And I got hold of the um, organizer. I sent him a little email saying, that's really kind of you to raise this money. But bearing in mind, I live in, you know, 
20 pounds will do. So perhaps you would like to return the rest of the money. Um, but, you know, it's just, you have to have some humor in all of this. But, uh, <laughs> no, he didn't. But the, but the petition came down, the fundraiser came down, which was which was good. Um, but, it, you know, I, I absolutely believe that Britain has a very, very important place, uh, part to play in the world especially when I say about what's going on in Britain, the tectonic plates are moving across the world. And I think Western society is under threat. Our values, our system of, of, of social society, our cohesion, and we have to stand up. And Britain has a very important part to play. And one of the things I think where we are at the moment in politics is that we aren't able to step up to that role in the world because people are laughing at us and we've lost some of that respect. So we have to get back to being a very important voice on the world stage, both from the point of view of preserving democracies around the world, but also preserving peace. And I think that's very important that we get back there. And I think only Britain can do that. We've always punched above our weight. We've always had a huge amount of respect. And I think we just need to reclaim that again. There's a whole... Um... Britain's relationship with itself is bizarre. Uh, yeah, it is. A, a strange mix of um, misty-eyed nostalgia, self-loathing, a, a very odd relationship with itself, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in and, and you know who in that part of the country you talk to. I mean, how should Britain feel about itself? How should it feel about its past? And what should it do about its future? That, oh gosh, that's a very big question. That's a very big question. And I think, I think maybe three things in answer, very short ones, to say that we don't have an identity. I, we, what, what is being British? And I think we have to figure out what that means. And I'd say that starts with education and school and talking about our belief in each other, our, our approach to humanity and human rights, the fact that we are one of the most tolerant countries in the world, despite all the things I've just said to you, um, we do have a democracy that we should be defending and, you know, not losing and, and ensuring that that's not diminished by legislation and by stealth. I think we have to protect the things that mean that we are a compassionate country. And I think we ha have to stop being so hard on ourselves and say, actually, what we have, let's figure out what it is that are the uh, bedrocks of what makes us all feel proud to be British. And then we communicate that and we educate each other with that and we teach our children that. And then we can all stand under those uh, pillars, if you like. If the, the fundamental pillars that hold up our society, we have to identify those. And once we do, then we have to ensure that they are strong. And that's how we ensure a better future. And that is not about, in my view, that's not about any political party, any political ideology. It is actually about us coming together and understanding it's what makes us individual but we would respect that individuality rather than condemn each other's differences and what about some of the symbols i mean obviously a whole debate over statues at the moment um mm -hmm. and it's illegal to pull them down and whether certain statues should have been pulled down ages ago what is the what is the right answer on some of the symbols that we still have knocking around universities and our public spaces should they be brought down or, or is it important to leave them there as some sort of you know, so that we don't erase parts of our terrible past? Well, I think the positive is that we're having these conversations, but I, back to education. We've got to educate. I mean, I'm, you know, we talk about slavery and the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm actually a descendant of indentured labour, which was the second form of slavery, if you like. And, you know, we, in the British Empire, the U, uh, was responsible for about three million, movement of about three million slaves. In indentured labour terms, it was 25 million 
or thereabouts. So it's a much, you know, and we don't talk about that. I, I mentioned it to people and people say, what is indentured labor? You know, in British Guiana, there was a Demerara uprising, uh, massacres, what happened? So we have to start with education. We can't hide our past. We have to be honest about it. We have to talk about it. We have to educate each other and then we can learn and move on. But I think the, the idea that we airbrushed it is not, is not a solution. And then what happens is these issues come up. Personally, I think I would put the whole statues and the whole, you know, what do we do with the symbols to a citizens assembly and get people to decide rather than individuals deciding, because I think it is a national conversation. And I do worry slightly that we've taken them out of view because when they're out of view in locked in room, is that still, you know, is that hiding? Is that another form of hiding the past? So I think we have to be very careful about how we address these issues. Um, but I think we do have to address them. And I think education as a tool is very undervalued. I mean, you know, look at schools. You know, we spend so much of my time, my children's time learning about the Tudors and learning about, you know, 1066. You just think, oh, for goodness sake, can we just update our history a bit? And, you know, can we learn about human rights? Can we learn about human convention? Can we learn about the UN? There's so much modern history that we need to learn. That's such a good point. And <laughs> what I completely agree with. Just think about your own ambitions then, because obviously you are, you know, a highly successful individual, clearly highly capable, highly influential. Let's say the True and Fair Party gets a, a, an element of parliamentary representation, you would lead it in the Commons. Even that, actually, you, you would still effectively be the leader of a small group. Wouldn't you rather be in a cabinet of, say, you know, not the True and Fair Party, but if it was, you know, Labour, Tory, Lib Dem, whoever you more agreed with at the time... Wouldn't your ambitions lie really in wanting to be near the top of government? If we were um, in a position where we were in a hung parliament, and I don't think that's uh, you know a, a distant uh, dream, then I think there would be a possibility, but we have to wait and see. At the moment, I'm focused on what can we do for the next year, well, then the year after that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a strategist. I don't like to look too far. I mean, we need to build our flanks. We need to you know, do our different regiments so that we've got people for social media, we've got people on the ground, we've got people, we've got to build our case, get it out there, raise awareness, and then go to the next stage. I'm, I'm not going to concentrate on what happens in two years time, I'm going to concentrate on what happens within the next few months, few, um, then a year, then 18 months, then two years. So we will build it in a systematic way rather than focusing on just the outcome. And have ever any leading politicians from any of the major parties tried to court you and get you to join? <laughs> We've had some interesting approaches, not just from um, politicians, but from experts. And actually, that's what I want to engage with. I do believe we need to become much more technocratic in our approach um, to government. And, you know, having people move from post to post where they have no understanding of what that their brief is, it's always struck me as a rather peculiar way. I mean, yes, you have to have an MP answerable, but, you know, should you have a technical secretariat that then serves not just a civil servant. So, you know, there are way, there there's real structural changes that, that need to be addressed. Um, but yes, I'm the one the I'm not interested in in people who just want to get back into politics to get back into politics, if you know professionalism. It, it, it's not it's not where we will be looking in our first instant. Um, so we have had conversations, but I um I'm cautious. I mean I'm I'm guessing Labour people have tried to recruit you at some point. I actually was a member of the Labour Party and uh, in the 2015 manifesto, um, I drafted some of the pension reforms in that manifesto, So, which I do believe because pensions are 
totally unaddressed when it comes to pension reform in our country. You know, we've got a pension system that's based on 1823, which is quite ridiculous. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so there's a lot of reform that needs to be done. And I, and I was uh, a member, active member up until three or four years ago. But right now, the Labour Party is not the party for me. Um, and I do think it has a lot of legacy issues still to address. But most importantly, I can't see their policy vision. And I believe we have a policy vision that we can offer the country, the people will see that it's practical, pragmatic and sustainable. Is there, I mean, it's a great title for a party, the True and Fair Party, but you, you kind of leave yourself <laughs> a hostage to fortune because the moment yep. you say something that you know, turns yep. out not to be true, even if it's a mistake, or people might feel that you've said something that's unfair, yep. you kind of, you're writing your critics' headlines for you sometimes if you're not careful. Yeah, no, it, it was a, it's an interesting um, dilemma choosing the name of a party because believe me, there's an awful lot of names that have gone. It's not an easy thing. Trying no. to find, I know, I know. Even um, Richard Titus Reform had this issue. You know that uh, yeah, find, trying to find a name for a party is not an easy thing. Um, but um, I'm not only a strategist; I'm a marketeer, and um, it comes to a point where people just want what it says on the tin is what it does. And I think people are so exhausted and mistrustful that when we tested names, people went, yeah, something that just says what it's going to aim to do. And yes, it could be a hostage of fortune, but then I say, but that means that we have to ensure that we're sticking to, to our knitting, that we actually should be held to account. So I'm, I'm aware of that challenge and um, I'm happy to step up to it. People, I mean, you could cut this either way, couldn't you? You can either think, this is the best time to launch a party called True and Fair with everything that's going on. There's probably never been a greater appetite for truth and fairness than there has been, particularly even in the last fortnight. Or you might say, <laughs> this is a nightmare time to launch because people are just so focused on what's going on specifically with the Prime Minister, you can't get any coverage. People just aren't listening to literally... People aren't even listening to the Labour Party at the moment. They're just focused on Boris Johnson. Look, there's no perfect time to, to um, launch and with COVID and we weren't sure what was going to happen. Do we launch in December, February, January? You know, there was no perfect time. And, and actually in our political system, first past post, you could argue there's no perfect time at all, irrespective. But we just got to get on with it. And so we've launched. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen in number 10. We, we didn't know what was going to happen with, you know, all these investigations. Um, and I would say that uh, launching now People are listening because it's not just what's happening in number 10 and the, the, the fact that, you know, the Nolan principles about, you know, mean that it's up to the prime minister. There's no legal ramifications for what's happening there. But it's also the fact that the police were so late in, in, um, in, in getting involved. You know, I'm, I wrote to Cresta Dick, we launched on the Thursday, Friday I wrote, I wrote all over the weekend. I've had three letters and communications and asking why that they were deferring their duties why they were fettering themselves as an organization when Sugre's report um, or investigation has no legal footing and no legal standing. And their excuse about the, you know, the four E's, I'd, I'd argue there was a fifth of evasion. Um, there is still a huge question as to why the Metropolitan Police were so slow in engaging in this. And the fact is that relying on Sugre's evidence is a complete nonsense argument because they are the police, they have to gather their own evidence. Um, so, you know, there are some institutional questions to ask about not just number 10 and the machinery of government, but actually our policing institutions as well. Obviously, lawyers do a, an important job in, in, on behalf of the public in, in, in holding the police to account and, and nudging the system uh, in, in the correct uh, direction. 
the Prime Minister just a few days ago attacked Keir Starmer by saying he's a lawyer, not a leader. Do you think <laughs> as, a, as a country we have a, a kind of uh, overly hostile uh, view of um, of lawyers, that they are, they're, they're seen as um, kind of, I don't know, some people really don't... I, I, think, I think it is absolutely disgraceful that politicians, not just um, uh, the comment that um, uh, our Prime Minister made in the chamber, um, which was like a pantomime is booing and hissing. I mean, my father once said that a parliament should not be a fish market. And I sometimes wonder, you know, those words uh, echo every so often I see the pantomime that happens or the fish market in, in ours, which is disgraceful. But we have had other politicians calling lawyers, you know, lefty lawyers. It is, not only is it dangerous to do that, but actually access to justice and a strong legal system is one of the fundamental for the states to keep our democracy strong. And by, you know, uh, politicians taking being opportunistic and targeting lawyers actually damages our country. And not just from the point of view of trust domestically, but many businesses um, and people invest in a country and in the UK because they see us as a very stable legal entity or, or country. They admire our legal system and they admire our lawyers. So to damage them and our court system is very irresponsible, economically, socially, and from an access to justice point of view. So I'd say that um, you know politicians should watch what they say when they attack the legal profession, because actually what they're doing is they're attacking the stability of our country. There's a, a school of thought around, you know, the last few years, certainly around Brexit and since, that a lot of um, a lot of what's going on in politics is about the establishment and elites and outsiders versus the elites. Now, regardless of Boris Johnson's background and however incredibly privileged it is, maybe part of his shtick in attacking Keir Starmer as a lawyer is to say, "Look, I'm still the outsider." You know, these lawyers, these clever people, they think they know better than you. You know, we're sick of experts, all that sort of narrative. Is that a challenge, perhaps, that you might face with the True and Fair Party? Is that you might get bunched in with that and say, look, this is just top down stuff. This is people in ivory towers telling the rest of us what to think. Well, I think um, uh, Boris Johnson might take, um, um, you know, uh, take you up on the point that he's not clever or he's not successful. Because <laughs> I think he would say that he is clever and successful and that he is, you know, the elite of the elite. But, um, uh, you know, going to the, to the best schools and, you know, it, it is it's bizarre the way he's painted his story. And, you know, that, that is up to him and the public. I, I'm, I'm not going to get drawn into him particularly. But I would put the question the other way and say... Um, so the head of your company, do you want the person who, you know, is uh, coming in every day, the, the, the person who's on the computer doing the data running the company, or do you want the person who is an expert and actually can run a company? Who do you want taking out your tooth? Somebody who's actually gone online and learned it themselves or somebody who's trained seven, eight years to be a dentist? I think the whole idea of uh, the, the, the denigration of experts is a very populist movement, and it's been done throughout history. Again, coming back to Holocaust Remembrance Day, it's a playbook. It's a populist playbook that is dangerous, and it moves us to a place where we have a very unstable society. People who are experts have put in the time, they've trained, they've got, if they're not good, and then they actually get thrown out. You know, regulators in most professions are pretty tough, tougher than any regulator on a government. So, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you transgress as a lawyer or a doctor, whatever profession you're in, you tend to be sanctioned or out. Um, so, you know, the, I would like to reclaim experts and say that expertise is not always about being right. Expertise is about bringing knowledge, wisdom, and, and experience to the table. And then 
experts inform and leaders should then lead that old saying but it's not about saying one is better than the other they should work in tandem and just thinking about how to engage the public in all this i mean obviously proportional representation electoral reform in some form or another has been at times part of mainstream political debate um and major parties have engaged with it i mean in, in devolved institutions obviously we have it the public have never seemed that bothered about moving from first past the post to proportional representation why don't you think that is and and how do you excite people about electoral reform well, there's, there is a change from the last, from the AV referendum to now. You know, we've got a generational change. And over 50% of the population have consistently in the last few polls said that they would embrace proportional representation. So it, it is, it, there is a generational change. But I think also because people are now more, I think it's really exciting that people are now more aware of politics. I think because of the internet and information, people know more. And because in an odd way, the shenanigans that have gone on have created more, people have gone to try and find out more. But proportional representation is very important. And how do you get people excited? It's, it's simple for me, is that you, you go out there and I keep on telling people, politics is not something that happens in a building in Westminster and actually it shouldn't happen. So I'm a great supporter of much more devolution of funding and policies to regions. I think that's got to be something we address, but it's not something that happens in buildings. Politics is about policies and policies are about how you live your everyday life from the water you drink to the where your bins are collected to what you learn in school. That is all politics. That's all policies. So, of course, you should be interested in and wanting it to work because it's about how you live your life from the day you wake the moment you wake up to the way you go to bed. It's about politics. But people say, actually, I'm, I mean, let alone, you know, the NHS, the economy, crime for most people, it's dog dirt on the street or uh, speed humps. You know, the, the essence of local yeah. politics is it should be 20 miles an hour around here or it shouldn't. <clears throat> you know, I always found trying to convince people about electoral reform was just so hard. Well, it's, it's a storytelling. And I think it's a storytelling about fairness. It's a story about fairness. When you walk in the box, and you put your ex. Do you expect that person to be, you know, do you expect it to be reflected? Um, and when it comes to local issues, yes. I mean, uh, Politicians have two jobs. They have their local job and then they have their national responsibility, which actually used to be about being part of the legislature. It's changed now. It's much broader than that. It's actually about society and the environment and internationally. So it's not just about making laws in your national capacity, but I think in your local capacity, you have, that's why I believe in local people. I think you have got to have local representation where people are out. And the other thing I do is I found out, which I mean, a few years ago that even holding surgeries are not a legal requirement and that some MPs around the country don't. I mean, this is crazy. You, I mean, these are the sort of things we want to put into law. You should be, all MPs should have to hold a number of surgeries, you know, you know, for sort of uh, X number of weeks a year. These are basic things. When you elect somebody, they should be doing the job. You're paying them. It's your taxes that are paying them. It, it's, it's gotten to a place where, an, a, you know, a 10 year old child would look at it and go, how did we get here? I mean, I've known MPs that have actively avoided not just surgeries, but any contact with the public at all. They, yeah, no, they... no. I, I went to one area where apparently they haven't seen their local MP for 18 months. Um, and uh, she, I won't name who it is, won't, doesn't have, an, won't, has never opened her office. I mean, that's completely absurd. And sh uh, that MP should not be an MP. It's incredible. I remember one saying to me, I said, like, why don't you do surgery? He said, well, you know, it would just generate casework. 
I was like, yeah, that's the point. That's what you're there <laughs> that's for. That's the point. No, that's no, no, point. no, 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 no. It's too puts too much pressure on the office. I was like, well, what what are they doing? Otherwise, they just sat there answering the phone in case someone calls. But I think they also then defer it to juniors who then have to take those calls and it's not good enough. And I think there's also something about how do we shore up the respect, you know, and it, yes, it, it's both way. MPs have to earn it, but actually people have to give MPs respect. And part of that, I think is, you know, and also the security element for what we've seen recently, you know, MPs should have an office in a national, in a municipal building that has a check-in, check-out. You know, we have to create status. We have to have respect for our system because by doing that, we'll also encourage people to go into politics who I believe have got a better cultural mindset and want to do the absolute right thing, not just to be in power, but actually on the principles of helping people. You mentioned your father earlier. He was attorney general of Guyana and as you say, set up his own political party. I mean, yeah. do you feel like you're living his legacy in a way? It's very odd because um, my old brother who actually uh, saw me the other day, he was, uh, you know, he sort of said, dad would have been proud of you because you're doing what he didn't actually get to do. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I think, I think I'm a child of politics because I was a naughty little child who never went to bed. I would lie at the top of the stairs and listen to him and his mainly men, obviously those days, um, talking about politics and, and human rights and social justice. And he was a great friend of, um, of Mandela and, and other people. And so I didn't always understand what they were saying, but I knew what they were saying was important. And so I think I, I always felt that um, he was an idol to me and I, I just felt, his whole thing about, uh, he, he, I grew up with this sentiment that your responsibility is to help others. And that's what my father lived and breathed. And I'm definitely his daughter. And did you, I mean, you say you were naughty for not going to bed earlier. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I imagine, well, I don't know. I can't, I could imagine both that you were uh, simultaneously a rebel, but someone who, who believed in rules. I mean, <laughs> were, were you a tear away as a child? Uh, I had three brothers. I was a complete tomboy. So, um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, um, we, we back in, in British Guiana, we didn't have television. We had Marvel comic books. So, um, I mean, or, or, and English books. Every every month you'd have a big shipment from the UK. So, you know, I, I would read, and by the time I was 11 or 12, I think I'd read every Bronte book and Charles Dickens, all the rest. But I'd also read just about every comic book as well and Marvel comic books. So I think I came up with the Superwoman before they'd even designed her. So I... <laughs> It's a weird combination of, of British philanthropists from novels, Marvel superheroes, and my father that sort of ended up in me being this weird mix. <laughs> are, you, are you still into Marvel then? Do you watch or, or the Avengers films? Oh, absolutely. I'm an absolute... I mean, I did the, one of the... One, you know, there's, there's quite a few... With my investment hat, there's quite a few investment opportunities that I've missed out on. And one of the ones is when my brother and I came to the UK we got rid of all our old Marvel comic books. And I'm just thinking, can you imagine what they must have been, that would have been worth now? Because literally we'd get them every single week. So yeah, it would have been great if I'd kept them all. <laughs> yeah, so if you if you were, um, if, if you were to liken yourself to someone from the, what is it they call it, the MCU? Is that the Marvel comic universe? <laughs> Who would you most be like? Well, very, very oddly in the city, when I started my campaign for um, and clearing up a lot of the dubious behaviours in the city, somebody um, in, in the city, in the FT, oh, it wasn't the FT, but somebody in the paper told, sort of called me the Black Widow Spider, which I thought was very funny because it, it was simultaneously racist and wrong and misogynistic, but also it made me think of the Marvel hero of, of the... So, so perhaps that's who, maybe that's my most suited. <laughs> Gina, this has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>
Thank you so much for coming on and good luck with the party and good luck with... Thank you, Matt. Trying to change the British system for the better. We wish you all the best. I will try my utmost. Thanks. Bye. Well, there you go, Gina Miller. And we'll all be watching, I'm sure, with with great interest to see how the True and Fair party works um, and how it fares and what its its policies are and whether it can take votes off other parties and and whether it can get a few MPs. It'd be really interesting. Um, But what a phenomenal person to talk to. What an amazing life and what an amazing perspective. And there are times when... I have definitely, and I would describe myself as an optimist and someone who's generally positive about life in general, but also the future of the country, and mainly because of the future of humanity, you know, <laughs> on the whole, given the chance humans, you know, find solutions to problems. Um, but I can sometimes worry about some of the undercurrents going on at the moment in British politics, and I do fret a little. Um, but I found Gina such a reassuring figure, and her take on the country and identity and things I just thought was so interesting and made me feel a bit better (laughs) a bit better about who we are so at the very least uh, there was that but so many great things talking to her about and just what an incredibly impressive individual uh, and the phenomenal work she's done already and applying that to politics um will be very interesting to see what happens um but thank you so much for downloading this come and see the show live and I'm off on tour as well with my New stand-up show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. I'm going all over the country. Um, Birmingham, Nottingham, Leeds, Norwich, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Exeter. Oh, God, where else? Uh, London, the South Bank Centre on the 19th of February. That is very soon. That's such an amazing place to perform comedy. So I hope it's also an amazing place to to watch it. Um, You can get all the dates, all the tickets for the tour and for the political party live at my website, mattford.com. Please leave a five-star and a written review. Tell your friends about it. Share them far and wide. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.